0: The sermon text for today is First Timothy 5, 9 through 16. The Old Testament reading is Psalm 46. First Timothy 5, 9 through 16. First, we will read Psalm 46. As the children are finding their seats, I want to say just a brief word to the congregation and especially to parents. What we are doing with the catechism is so very important, brothers and sisters. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Um, perhaps you've noticed fairly radical shifts within our culture. As of late, it's pretty evident that our culture is radically changing. It's it's very rapid. Um, One of the questions on my mind is what do we do about it? What do we do about it? And there's a lot of things to do about it. First, we pray, we trust the Lord. I'll get to that in the sermon, in fact. But I think one of the most important things we can do is teach our children and the entire congregation God's truth. It's not insignificant. Um, It's very important to teach these fundamental truths and in fact, uh, some of the radical things that we see transpiring in our culture, if you trace them all back and you ask what is at the root of it, it's at at the root of this kind of stuff. The kind of stuff that we're teaching our children through the the catechism, that there is a God, only one true God, he's to be worshipped, he's to be honored. Uh, So... Do not overlook the significance of what we are doing here on the Lord's Day, preaching and teaching the Word of God, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, introducing the catechism, assembling again to hear catechetical preaching. Um, this is not random stuff that we're deciding to do. Or this is what we're doing because this is what the church has done throughout church history. And the scriptures require it, doctors to be taught. Also, I think this is the answer. This is how we are going to influence culture, regain culture, perhaps have an impact. Uh, we are to... Be God's people. We're to promote God's truth. We're to preach the gospel. And so do not um, neglect this, brothers and sisters, but be eager to engage in the study of God's word in all of these different ways. Psalm 46. I'll get on with it. We're going to read scripture. And this passage is very comforting. I'll come back to it in the sermon eventually. Psalm 46. The title is, To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamuth, A song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9 First Timothy 5, 9. Paul writes to Timothy, and he continues talking about how the church is to care for widows. Here he says, "'Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works.'" If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur a condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. This is an interesting little passage that we have before us today. And if I were to guess, I would say that it is the least familiar passage in all of First Timothy. I can't prove that, but that would be my guess. Paul is here speaking to issues that are somewhat foreign to us. And so I think the tendency may be to rush past this text and on to the next one. Let a widow be enrolled, he says. Let a widow be enrolled. What does that mean? Enrolled into what, we ask? Timothy obviously knew what Paul was referring to. Paul didn't have to elaborate. He expected Timothy to know what it meant for a widow to be enrolled. And we are to assume that the saints in the church of Ephesus knew, indeed, probably the whole early church knew what this meant. But given our church experience and our cultural context, it is not immediately clear to us what Paul means by the command, let a widow be enrolled. In this sermon this morning, I will first move through this passage to explain what Paul meant by these words. And then after that, I'll have to have something to say about what this passage means for us. Though we live in a culture that differs significantly from the one that Paul and Timothy lived in, I do believe that this text is filled with application for us. Some of it very specific and drawn directly from the text. Some of it more general. And so first of all, let us consider the command, let a widow be enrolled. We know what a widow is. A widow is a woman whose husband has died. And we know that Paul made a distinction in the previous passage between widows and, these are his words, true widows. When Paul spoke of true widows, he was referring to widows who were all alone in the world, with no relatives to care for them. These True widows were lacking in the necessities of life. According to Paul, these true widows are to be honored by the church. This means that the church is to show them proper respect by looking out for them and seeing to it that their physical and also spiritual needs are met. The church is called to honor true widows. Here in verse 9, Paul is addressing something similar but He is being more specific. Here, he is not only commanding that true widows be honored, but that some of them be enrolled. Some of these true widows are to be enrolled. Again, the question is, what is meant by enrolled? The word simply means to put on a list or to enroll a person as a member of a group. So here, Paul advances the conversation from the previous passage. There he spoke of the church honoring widows who are truly widows, which will oftentimes and will involve providing for their physical needs uh, to some degree. But here he is now talking about some of these widows being enrolled into some group. So, So what is this group? Well, the remainder of the passage will make it clear that Paul is referring to a group of worthy widows who are taken under the care of the church as they devote themselves to service within the church and also to a single life. Again, the church would devote itself to the care of these widows who were enrolled, and these widows would commit to not remarry, so that they might care for the poor and needy so long as they were able to do so. And as I have said, this whole idea does strike modern-day American Protestants as odd and foreign. Doesn't it? Do you know of any church that is doing this, that has a a list of widows who have been taken in in such a pronounced way, these having devoted themselves to the single life and to the service of needy Christians? Uh, The church uh, in America today uh, really does not do this. And so it strikes us as odd. What does Paul mean here? Well, this is what he means. He is referring to this practice, which was evidently common in the days of the early church. Why is this odd to us? Why does the church in America today not do this, at least the Protestant or Evangelical church? Why do they not do this? I think the reasons are very complex. There are three that come immediately to mind One, in our day and age, many assume that it is the responsibility of the government to care for widows and others who are in need. The church and even the extended family have in some ways been replaced by government programs. And no, I'm not here interested in making judgments about that. I only wish to make the observation that this is how things are. If a person grows destitute, where will they think to go? What will be their first thought? They will probably think that they should go to the government for care or for assistance. And it was not so in Paul's day. If an individual were to fall into poverty, the family was first in line to meet the need. And after that, the church was up, at least for the Christian, uh, the church was up. They were the, to, to, to care for the needy uh, amongst them. Again, I'm not here making a political statement, only an observation which will help us to understand why this concept is foreign to us. In our day and age, many assume that it is the responsibility of the government to care for widows and others who are in need. Two, we must remember that our society is affluent. Our society is very affluent. Uh, Sometimes we struggle financially, brothers and sisters, uh, uh, even in this affluent culture, and we can bemoan the fact that we're struggling financially, but do not forget that we are rich. (laughs) We are rich in this culture. We enjoy uh, many benefits and pleasures that were unheard of in times past and even in other places in the world today the american middle class is very large when compared to the middle class in other times and places we do know that poverty is certainly present within our society i'm not denying that it certainly is here but the percentage of those living in poverty is very low when compared to times past and other places in the world today. And this would certainly have an effect upon this issue of having true widows in our midst who are so destitute that they need to be enrolled. You, you understand uh, the, the affluence of our culture has an effect upon that. Three, we must also consider our modern healthcare system. This also has an effect upon this issue. In our culture, we have uh, wonderful health care. We also have assisted living facilities where the aged are often cared for. Indeed, there are many benefits to living within a modern, advanced, and affluent society. We recognize that, don't we? There are many benefits that are associated with this, benefits that we should thank God for. But these benefits that we enjoy are not beyond critique, It is not difficult to see that with every good thing that we enjoy, there is also the potential for evil things. But as I have said, I'm not here offering a detailed critique, only observations. Why does this concept of some Christian widows being enrolled strike us as odd? Well, in brief, our culture is very different from the one that Paul and Timothy lived in. In the days of the early church and throughout the history of the church, the responsibility to care for Christian widows who were truly widows left all alone fell squarely upon the church. And here in 1 Timothy 5, we see the practice of the early church. Some of these widows would be enrolled as widows. Again, the church would commit to provide food and shelter for them in their poverty, and these widows would devote themselves to a single life of Christian service, so long as they were able to serve. Indeed, we know that this practice was developing in the earliest days of the church. You should remember that situation that prompted the appointment of the first deacons, as recorded for us in Acts chapter 6. You will remember the situation. Some widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food, while other widows were receiving preferential treatment and that was a problem it was causing division within the church and that is why the first deacons were appointed they were to sort that out they were to oversee this this ministry of the church to care for widows in an orderly and just fashion i mention it here only to show that from the earliest days the practice of the church was to care for its widows in an orderly fashion there was Already at that time, a daily distribution of food managed by the church. And by the time that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, he could speak of widows being enrolled into the number. You would do well, brothers and sisters, to notice that the bulk of this passage sets forth qualifications for enrollment. It says very little as to what it means to be enrolled or what is involved in that The bulk of this passage sets forth qualifications for enrollment. If a widow was to be enrolled, we are told that she had to meet certain qualifications. Starting in verse 9, Paul says, "...let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband." and having a reputation for good works if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. And so here we see that there are certain standards that must be met if this widow, who was truly a widow, was to be enrolled. And these qualifications may be divided into three parts. First of all, age. Secondly, proven faithfulness in marriage. And thirdly, proven character, especially as it pertains to service. First of all, Paul commands Timothy to not enroll a woman who is under the age of 60. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, he says. So, so why this requirement, we might ask? Why this requirement? Well, he will explain in verse 11, saying, But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. As I have said... Being enrolled as a widow of the church did involve committing oneself to a single life and to a life of service. And perhaps Paul knew from experience what tended to happen with younger widows. They would likely meet a man, desire to marry, and be tempted to break their commitment to Christ. When Paul says that their passions draw them away from Christ, pay careful attention here, brothers and sisters, I do not think that he necessarily means that they will be drawn away from faith in Christ. Some were drawn away from faith in Christ, as we will see later in this passage. But rather what he means here is from their commitment to serve him in the church as a single woman. And when he says they desire to marry and so incur condemnation, he does not speak of eternal condemnation as if these were, Widows who have broken their commitment have apostatized. But rather he speaks of earthly condemnation, an earthly rebuke or judgment. And when he says, for having abandoned their former faith, he does not mean that they would, by marrying again, abandon their faith in Christ, but rather their former pledge or commitment to Him. And so really this is a matter of translation. The Greek word translated by the ESV as faith at the end of verse 12 can also be translated as pledge. In fact, this is how the NET, the NASB, and NIV translate the word. Listen to how the NASB renders verses 11 through 12. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. That is the NASB's rendering of this this verse. And I think it is a better translation. It fits the context. And it accords better with the clear teaching of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, we know that a widow or widower is free to remarry. In the Lord, Paul himself says so in 1 Corinthians 7.39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. and So there Paul uh, directly addresses the question of whether or not a, a Christian man or woman is free to remarry after the death of their spouse. They are free, but what is the standard? They must remarry In the Lord. This means that they are to marry a believer, which is the standard for all believers. We are to marry in the Lord. And so clearly, if a widow remarries in the Lord, she does not abandon Christ nor her faith in Christ, bringing upon herself eternal condemnation. So, what does Paul mean here in 1 Timothy 5 11 through 12? Does he contradict what he wrote in Corinthians? We say no, he is not contradicting himself. The context makes this clear. He has in mind the widow's pledge, the widow's pledge. The church pledged to care for her, and she, having been enrolled, pledged to remain single and to serve the needy. And Paul is simply here saying that younger widows would be particularly tempted to break that pledge, being driven by their passions or sensual desires as they desired to to marry again. And this breaking of the pledge would bring condemnation in an earthly sense. It would bring shame upon them. It would bring a rebuke for they would have then gone back on their word. I think we are to remember the command, brothers and sisters, let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. That is James 5.12. I think this is the condemnation that Paul is referring to. It's the kind of Condemnation that comes upon you when you break your word, when you fail to keep a vow that you have made or follow through on a pledge or a commitment. Uh, that is what Paul is addressing here. He is saying, don't enroll younger widows under the age of 60 is the number that he gives because they will be particularly tempted uh, to, to marry again and therefore go back on the pledge that they have made. Secondly, Paul requires that widows that these widows who were to be enrolled had been faithful to their husbands in marriage. Again, we must keep in mind that these widows were not merely being put on a list to receive aid, but were committing themselves to not marry so that they might devote themselves to Christian service within the church. And we are to think of this, this service being conducted in a very pronounced way, a significant way. Um, And so I think this is why Paul requires that these widows had proven themselves faithful to their husbands in marriage. They were to serve within the church. They would need to be faithful in this service, so they needed to be proven as faithful. The widow in her service would need to be self-controlled. She would need to be a faithful individual. And so Paul required that she demonstrated this faithfulness and self-control in her marriage relationship prior to her husband passing away. Thirdly, the widow was to have proven character, having, verse 10, a reputation for good works if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. This needed to be her quality of life, her proven character. Why these qualifications? Why all of these qualifications? After all, shouldn't the church just look upon widows and true widows and care for them in their need. Yes, they should. But we are not talking about that, are we? We are talking about a group of widows, a particular group of true widows who are going to be enrolled as widows. They're going to be thoroughly cared for in their poverty and they are going to thoroughly devote themselves to service within Christ's church as they take this vow of of, of the single life. Again, Why these qualifications, they really don't make much sense if we think that these are qualifications that widows must meet to simply receive aid. No, these are qualifications that widows must meet to be enrolled. There is a difference. A widow is to be honored, brothers and sisters. This has already been established. A widow is to be helped and cared for if she is truly a widow, left all alone with nothing left but her hope in God. That was taught to us in the previous passage. This is true of widows young and old, This is true of widows who are mature and immature in the faith. This is true of those who have lived godly lives in the past and also of those who lived wicked and unfruitful lives prior to coming to faith in Christ. The church is to honor its widows and there are no qualifications mentioned for this except that they are true widows. This means that they are truly all alone and that they are truly in need as opposed to being self-indulgent. That has already been established. But if a widow is to be enrolled, if she is to come under the care of the church, devoting herself to a single life and to the service of Christ in His church, then these qualifications must be met, lest she immaturely and unfaithfully squanders the support she receives through selfish and foolish living. You guys are looking at me right right now going... We don't have any widows who are enrolled in anything. Why are you spending so much time talking about it? Well, first of all, this is God's Word. Secondly, these truths need to be applied broadly, don't they? Do you see the wisdom here? Do you see the principles that Paul is employing, teaching us how we are to care for people in need within the church and society in general? These principles are to be applied broadly, brothers and sisters. We can learn from them And this was Paul's concern. He was concerned about uh, the support of the church being squandered through selfish and foolish living. In verse 13, he speaks of the younger and unproven widows when he says, Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies saying what they should not do. I need to define those terms for you? I don't think that I did in my sermon here. You know what an idler is, someone who's lazy, someone who is lazy. And we're not to promote that within Christ's church. We're not to be lazy people. We're to be diligent people, hardworking in the home, hardworking at our places of employment. We are to be hardworking, busy people, busy in a good way, you understand. We're not to be idlers, Certainly we're not to be gossips, going around and talking about other people's business, busybodies, putting your nose, sticking your nose where it doesn't belong from house to house. By the way, that little phrase, from house to house, might imply sexual immorality. Paul's concern is that we do not support immature, unfaithful, and unproven widows by enrolling them so that they might be freed to use that freedom uh, for immoral and fruitless living, you see. Uh, that is Paul's concern here. I think you can see how this passage differs slightly from the previous one. Again, in the previous passage, Paul wrote concerning the honor and care that is to be shown to true widows in general. But in this one, he addresses the enrollment of widows. And so, should Christian widows be honored and cared for if they are true widows and truly in need, even if they are young and mature in the faith and have a very checkered past? What is the answer to that? Yes, they should be cared for. We should care for them as sisters in Christ, sisters in Christ. We should be sure that they are not going destitute. No matter what their past was like, no matter if they came to faith in Christ only a few months ago, if, if, if they are ours, if they belong to us, if they are united to Christ as we are in a part of this local body, we are to care for them. There are no qualifications to be met. But should Christian widows be enrolled if they are young and mature in the faith and have a checkered past? Answer, no for they are not fit for this kind of service that they are committing themselves to, but will be tempted to break their pledge to Christ and His church and to squander the provision of the church instead of using it for good. Paul goes on to explain what the younger widows should do then. He would have younger widows, verse 14, marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan." Paul says. I take this last phrase to mean that some widows have abandoned the faith by living immoral lives or by marrying again, but not in the Lord after their husbands passed away. Some have done this. But he says this is what the younger widows should do. If it is possible, have them marry again, bear children, manage their households. Uh, They're to devote themselves to this. They're to be hardworking, not idlers, busybodies, and gossips, uh, but they're to be busy with the things of the Lord. They're to be diligent in this. Um, in, in this way, the adversary will have no occasion for, for slander. Uh, this is what uh, the younger widows were, were to do. And in verse 16, Paul reiterates what is said in the previous passage, the family is first in line to care for widows, not the church. That was already taught in the previous passage, and here it is said again, but in a different way. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So the family is up first, not the church. And it is the the women in particular who Paul calls to care for their widowed relatives. This is only natural, I think. The family is to rise to the occasion, so that the church is not burdened. And no, burdened here does not mean inconvenience, but rather financially burdened, you see. Did you hear that, brothers and sisters, by the way? I think sometimes when people fall destitute, when they are in need, be it a widow or anyone else, and the church needs to step in, therefore, to provide financial support, sometimes those people hesitate to ask because they think to themselves, what? I don't want to be a burden. That is not what is meant here. That is not what is meant. You are not a burden, brothers and sisters, if you are in need. In fact, you are a blessing. You are a blessing in many ways. And as it pertains to the need that you have, you are a blessing because you give the church an opportunity to meet that need. When it is legitimate, That, that is a blessing. So that is not what the text means. Burden does not mean inconvenience. Rather, it is the reality that there are limited resources. That is what Paul is addressing here. And if there are limited resources, then when families step up to care for their widows, and in particular when the women in the family step up to care for their widows, they, in that sense, take a a burden off of the church so that the church might better care for the other widows. Uh, Limited resources is what Paul is addressing here. Now, up to this point, I have only explained the text to you. I have not really attempted to apply it except for with passing remarks. And while for us the direct application is rather sparse, I do believe that this text is filled with indirect application. So so please allow me to draw some of that out for you. First of all, some direct application. Brothers and sisters, we must follow the model that the scriptures lay down for us concerning the care of widows. We cannot just go the way of, of the culture. Our culture is so very different from the culture of the early church. And thanks be to God, we are not inundated with true widows in the way that the early church was. And that is a blessing. It has something to do, as I have said, with our affluence. But even in a wealthy society, the church will always have widows and other needy people in her midst. And we must care for them according to the scriptures. According to the principles set before us in God's word, we must apply the general principles that are established here. Think of that. That's important. It's important for you members to be aware of these general principles. It's especially important for deacons to be aware of them as they are called to lead in the benevolence ministries of the church. And there is a ditch on both sides of the road. We must not overstep and intrude upon the family's responsibility and privilege to care for their relatives, nor can we negligently leave it to the government. I see that as the ditch on both sides of the road. Brothers and sisters, the government will never be able to do the job that the family and church are designed to do in caring for the needy. The government cannot provide a personal touch. It cannot love and nurture the one who is in need, and neither can the government effectively distinguish between the one who is truly in need and the one who is self-indulgent, idle, a busybody. Only the family and the church and other private institutions are in a position to discern these things. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that a Christian should turn down all forms of government assistance. Here is how I see it. The members of this church have paid taxes. I think you have. I hope you have. (laughs) And if the need is legitimate and the assistance is available, then it would be wise to take advantage of it and give thanks to God for his provision. But here I am saying that families and churches cannot leave it to the government alone. Sometimes the government assistance will not be enough and certainly the government will not be able to provide the spiritual and emotional guidance and support that is truly needed for widows, for orphans, for others who are in need. The church must be prepared to care for the needy in our midst according to biblical principles. Elders and deacons must know them and be prepared to act according to wisdom. And you will notice that, and you will notice uh, that what it means for a widow to be enrolled is, is not specified here. What did it look like? For these widows who were enrolled in Ephesus, do we know? It's really left up to our imagination. The text does not say. I don't know that there's any way for us to be sure as to what it looked like in Ephesus or in the other churches in that region, in any of the churches in the early church. And I'm glad for that because I think that the general principle needs to be left general so that wisdom can be applied from situation to situation. The kind of care that is offered will vary depending upon the situation. Wisdom and discernment is needed, but first we must know what the scriptures do say if we are to act according to wisdom. If you don't see why this is important, let's talk sometime. I think this is massively important stuff for the church to consider. Secondly, some indirect application, or at least a little bit more indirect application I would say to you that all should strive to meet the qualifications that are stated here for enrolled widows. The text is speaking of women who have lost their husbands to death, but by way of indirect application, we may ask this question of the men as well. What will your reputation be when you reach 60 years of age? Do you think in those terms? We need to think in those terms. In fact, I think uh, the young people need to think in these terms as well. Here, you probably don't think much beyond tomorrow or next week or something like that, right? But even if you are very young, maybe you should stop at some point and think, Someday I'm going to be 60. And I am asking you the question, what will your reputation be when you reach 60 years of age? What kind of life will you live? Will others look upon you and say, this one was faithful in marriage and diligent in good works. They were faithful to bring up their children. They showed hospitality. They served others and cared for the afflicted. Will this be your reputation? Or will you be known as one who lived an idle, self-indulgent life? You have already been building a reputation, even if you are very young. You're building it today. A reputation is something that you build over a long period of time. And so what I'm saying to you all is, young and old, build carefully. Build carefully. If you are happy with your reputation, then do not be puffed up with pride. Give glory to God. And to quote Paul, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. What does that mean? Do not be proud. It may be that tomorrow you fall. And ruin your reputation entirely and bring shame upon God's name. So so beware of pride. If you are happy with your reputation, then continue on in humility, in full dependence upon God, and be sure to finish well. Be sure to finish well. But if you are unhappy with your reputation, then make it right today. Make it right today. Turn from your shortcomings and your sins. Confess them to the Lord and to others and pursue Christ starting right now. Our objective should be to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. For the young people in the room, you have an opportunity to get an early start at that, to be a good and faithful servant all the days of your life. What a blessing. But if you are advanced in age and if you have lived a sinful past, do not despair, brothers and sisters. Turn from your sins, confess them to God and to others, and begin to live a fruitful life to the glory of God, even now, even now. We are to remember that the choices that we make today do determine who we are tomorrow. So if you decide to be a liar today, You'll probably be a liar tomorrow. And by the time you're 60, you will be a hard-hearted and very good liar. Not a good thing. But if you decide to be an honest person now, build upon that. That will grow to produce good fruits. We need God's help in this, brothers and sisters. We need God's help in all of these things. Thirdly, I would like to step back just a little bit from this passage and make even more indirect application from it. And I think it is important for us to notice the way in which Paul viewed the role of civil government, the family, and the church. The civil government, family, and the church. The civil government is not mentioned in this passage, and I am saying that is significant. The absence is significant. You may go to Romans 13 to learn more about the role of the government according to Paul. Other places too. But the church and the family are mentioned throughout this passage. And notice this general truth though the church is like a family, the church is not the family. Though the church is like a family, the church is not the family. Stated differently, though familial language is used to describe the church, God is our Father. We are adopted as His children and are therefore brothers and sisters in Christ, the church being called the household of God in Ephesians 2.19 and 1 Timothy 3.14. All of this familiar language is used to describe the church. This does not do away with the biological family for the Christian. Stated in yet another way, the church does not swallow the family up, rendering her useless. No, the church is the church and the family is the family. Both are very significant. Both have an authority structure. Both have certain responsibilities and special tools at their disposal to accomplish those responsibilities. And though it is true that the church is a spiritual family, the church is not the biological family. God has a purpose for each of these institutions. And this is made very clear by Paul when he repeatedly insists that family members have a special obligation to care for their widows, for their relatives. And I think the implications of this are huge. The only way that Paul could speak in this way is if he believed that God had designed the world to function in a particular way, Establishing certain institutions which would have spheres of authority and particular responsibilities. The only way he could say what he says here in 1 Timothy regarding the church and regarding the family and the various roles that they have is if he believed this with all of his heart that God designed the world in a particular way so that these institutions would play a particular role. Here is my point it is right for us to be concerned about the church to be sure that she is grounded upon the truth, properly ordered and faithful to fulfill God's purposes for her. But we must also be concerned for the family. The Christian family is very important, brothers and sisters. The Christian family must also be grounded upon the truth, properly ordered and faithful to fulfill God's purposes for her. Brothers and sisters, one of the most important and foundational things you can do to contribute to the flourishing of the church and the furtherance of Christ's kingdom is to be faithful in your family life. Have you ever thought about that? The family is so very foundational. It's a foundational and core component of the church. It's foundational for the prosperity of society. What you do in the home matters deeply, deeply. And so we must be faithful in family life. So do you wish to contribute to the flourishing of society? Do not neglect your family. The family is the most fundamental institution. Husbands, give yourself to loving your wives. Do not be slack in this. Wives, honor your husbands. Parents, bring your children up in the Lord. Children, honor your parents and love your siblings. Family is really the most common institution, but do not neglect it because it is common. Treat it as precious, knowing that it is foundational. The church is like a family. It is a spiritual family, but it is not the family, the biological family. There are some things that the family can do that the church cannot do. Raising children is one thing that comes to mind. And so, brothers and sisters, we must devote ourselves to the establishment of strong families. And this commitment to the family does not end when the children leave the house, but it is to last a lifetime. Relatives are to care for their widows. Did you hear that in Paul's writings here? And so how foolish it is for husbands and wives to abandon their commitment to the marriage after their children are raised. You know that is a, that is a trend. You know? We'll stay together Until the kids are out of the house. Because after all, our marriage was really only about the children from the beginning. That's garbage. That's garbage. Your marriage was about the marriage from the beginning. And the glory of God in marriage from the beginning. And one of your responsibilities as a married couple was to raise the children. And after they're out of the home, guess what? You enter into a new phase as a married couple. You are to be sure that your marriage continues to thrive even after the children are gone. It's foolish for husbands and wives to abandon their commitment to the marriage after their children are raised. Let me ask you this. What about your latter years, friends? What about your latter years? What is that going to be like for you if you have not continued to make your marriage a priority and and invest into the family? What about the influence you are to have on your grandchildren? What about their responsibility to care for you in old age? Do not allow these family bonds to unravel once the children are gone. You're to make your marriage a top priority. The marriage bond is to last for a lifetime. And brothers and sisters, I might say this to you right now, those of you who have children in the home. You are making a very grave mistake if you are making your family life all about the children. That is not going to go well in the long run. Make it about the marriage first and the glory of God in marriage. And in that, the children are going to be most blessed. They will be most blessed in your home and they will be most blessed as young adults when they establish their own homes and you will be blessed in old age with children and grandchildren who are still eager to be involved with you and to care for you, especially when you are in need. Fifthly and lastly, I have a very broad point of application for you which is drawn not only from this text but from everything we have been considering in Paul's letter to Timothy how important it is for us to pour ourselves into these small and local institutions of the family and the church, especially as we witness the very rapid degeneration of the culture around us. This is huge. Brothers and sisters, the year 2020 was an unsettling year. It was a strange year, wasn't it? And I know that you can feel it. I feel it. You feel it. We all feel it. There's something unsettling about what is going on in our world and in our culture. And 2021 has been a strange year already, hasn't it? So much for new beginnings, right? I saw a joke somewhere, a meme. You know, it was like on the 7th, I think, that was posted. But my 7-day trial of 21 has um, has expired, my, my free trial, and... I want, whatever, I want out. I I forget, but it was something to that effect. It's true. Strange. In one sense, there's nothing new under the sun. Keep that in mind. But let us also acknowledge that, yes, our culture is rapidly changing. Our nation is rapidly changing. It's okay. It's not okay, but it's okay. Why is it okay? God is our refuge and strength. Amen. Okay. So it's been a strange year. Who would have thought Georgia would have voted the way they voted, for example, Who would have imagined that we would see images like the ones that came out of the Capitol on on Wednesday? What is going on? Everything does feel unsettled. So what do we do? That's the question. What do we do? Well, we do what we always do, brothers and sisters. We pray. We take godly action when it in our power to do so. And with the things that are outside of our control, we trust the Lord. Brothers and sisters, a lot of things are outside of our control. But sometimes we are more aware of it. You understand? Really, everything is outside of our control. But you know what I mean. Like, what, what are you responsible to do? Well, there's only a few things. There's a lot that you just have no effect upon. And it's always that way. But sometimes you're more aware of it. Like, hey, I'm not in control. Well, no kidding. You never were. But now you know it and you feel it in your soul. And that's okay. Run to God. He's your refuge and strength. We must trust the Lord in these things. Um, We must trust the Lord ever more deeply. That's the reason I read from Psalm 46 at the beginning of the sermon. You probably heard me read Psalm 46 and 1 Timothy 5. (laughs) What do those have to do with one another? It felt kind of jarring. I understand that. But it encourages us to do this very thing. God is saying there. There the text is saying, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear. Listen to this language. Though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This is, this is language that is describing something unsettling. In fact, this language describes political uh, tumult. That's what's being described here. Um, it is in unsettling times that our faith is put to the test. It is one thing to say God is our refuge and strength when all is well, isn't it? But what about in times of trouble? Will you say it when the mountains move. When the waters roar in foam. Will you say it then? So what are we to do? We are to pray. We are to act responsibly when it in our power to do so. And with the things that are outside of our control, we are to trust the Lord. And we must also learn to devote ourselves to the common things that God has ordained. The small and local institutions that He has established, which we are so prone to neglect, thinking of them as insignificant. And I am here speaking of the family and the church. Do not overlook what is right in front of you. The family, the church, the the people that you can actually see with your eyes. Do not overlook them. Being concerned with things that are far off from you and, and, and way beyond your ability to control. Brothers and sisters, I've always believed this, but now I believe it more than ever. If we wish to thrive in this world, if we wish to be happy, to be at peace, to have an impact, to be fruitful, to survive and to flourish to the glory of God, then we must not overlook the little common things that are right before our eyes while being consumed with problems and concerns that are distant and way outside of our control. I, I hope that you're following me. This has always been a temptation, but now it is amplified by technology, I think, and a very rapid, almost instantaneous new cycle. How easy it is to be consumed by troubles and the, the troubles and concerns of this life. Just absolutely concerned, uh, consumed by them. Jesus had something to say about this. are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown to the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying... What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The negative command is, do not be anxious. But the positive commands are twofold. Trust God to provide for you and seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So brothers and sisters, that is what I'm calling you to do. Trust God and devote yourself to obedient living and the advancement of His kingdom. Devote yourself to that. Do that. And do not allow yourself to be consumed with worry concerning things that are way outside your control. Let me be very specific. Parents, put down your smartphones and look at your children. Do that. Stop reading the news and read them a book which will edify their souls. Read them scripture. Sit down at the dinner table together and do it. Stop talking about politics and start talking about God's word. Stop investing all of your emotions and things way out there and start investing more of it right here and what is before you. Think family. Think local church. I'm not calling you to disengage politically, but you must keep it in check. And when it comes to where you are investing your time, treasures, and energies, invest it here locally and into those people and institutions you can see with your own eyes. And I do trust that this will be good for our world, for our nation, for our church and families, and even your own soul. And so there it is. That's my final and very broad point of application. What shall we do in these turbulent times? Trust God, cast away anxiety, focus on today, seeking first righteous living and the advancement of of His kingdom in our lives, in our homes, in our church, and from here to the ends of the earth, all to the glory of our God and King. Let us pray. Father in heaven, help us to be faithful as your people in our homes and in our churches. We thank you for the reminder that we have had from First Timothy here regarding the care of widows. Lord, help us to not overlook those who are in need right in front of us but may we honor them according to your word and according to wisdom Father I do pray your blessing upon the members of this church that they would be encouraged today that they would be diligent in seeking the kingdom of God and in living righteous lives and that they would be free from anxiety for we know that you are the sovereign Lord you are all powerful all knowing infinitely wise and you love us You will care for us. Father, remind us of these truths if we have forgotten them and make us faithful in Christ's name.